0: Hey guys, Kyle here. Welcome back to the In Pursuit of Christ podcast. Super excited to be back in here with you. And tonight we're going to be diving into one of my favorite topics in all of scripture, the deity of Jesus or Jesus as God. And before we get into that, just want to talk about you guys, see how you're doing, how your weekend's going. My weekend so far has been full. We had some friends over earlier today and just spent some time fellowshipping with them discussing the word, what's going on in the world, and just having some good quality time fellowshipping. And so nothing like spending time with the body of Christ and friends and family and encouraging one another. So if you're not plugged into a local community, I highly encourage that. Super fulfilling and definitely needed to encourage you, keep you accountable, pray for each other, find out what kind of needs each other has to be able to serve each other and encourage one another in the Lord. So just wanted to take a second to share that with you guys, that that's what I'm grateful for today. But yeah, let's dive into today's topic. Excited to open up the Word. Got an awesome cup of coffee that I'll be sipping on as we go through this. But yeah, what's the inspiration for the deity of Jesus, or why do I want to talk about that tonight? Well, probably for a couple reasons. As I said, it's one of my favorite topics in all of Scripture to talk about. Also, there are a lot of cults out there that deny the deity of Jesus in some form or another. They'll teach that Jesus was just a mere man. They'll teach that Jesus was just a God, a lesser God. He was created by the God and is still a God, but just lesser than the Father, so there's not an equality there. Or They'll teach that he's one of many gods. So in some form or another, they deny the orthodox teaching that Jesus is God, or they'll deny, thus denying, I should say, the doctrine of the Trinity. And so John 1.1 is a very foundational passage that really sets the stage for all of the gospel of John. And there's many passages in John that refer to the deity of Jesus, statements by Jesus himself, statements from the author or the disciples, and so I definitely want to look at some of those, but before we get into the later chapters of John, we really need to set a good foundation for the gospel itself, and John 1.1 is packed with meaning, and really, it's the first 18 verses, so I'm not sure how many we'll get through in the time that we have, but I definitely want to set the stage and and give some context before we look at some other passages in, in John's gospel. And so, before we dive into John 1 1, I just want to give a quick definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, this is super important. And also, before I get into this, I also just want to say that I've discovered that I have a passion for apologetics and defending the faith. And I want to make sure others are equipped as well. And we're to have a reason for the hope that is within us. And I know Paul, and I believe it's in Timothy or Titus, I'm not remembering right now, but he basically exhorts Timothy or Titus to be sound in doctrine and be able to rebuke those who contradict it. So understanding God's word, rightly dividing the word of truth, and being able to give a defense is super important for your faith. And you want to know why you believe what you believe, and you want to be able to defend that. And so I think that's super important. And not just knowing about Jesus or knowing about the Father or about the Holy Spirit, but having an intimate relationship with God and knowing who God is and being able to explain that to people who have questions or people who make false statements and being able to lovingly correct and expose the truth. And so... That's kind of my inspiration, and I really felt that this would be a good topic to dive into. And so before, like I said, we dive into John one. I just want to go over just a quick kind of the premise of the position that I'll be defending from the Word. And so what? Uh, just a brief definition of the Trinity and bef- is that within the one being that is God, there exists three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple caveats with that, this teaching is outside of our finite human comprehension. And so we're not fully going to be able to understand that in every measure and detail. And that's okay, because God is outside of time. He's outside of our understanding and a God that we can fully understand, I don't believe is worthy of our worship. And so there is some mystery to this, but that doesn't mean that we can't understand it from the biblical revelation what God has revealed in his word about who he is. So we do have to understand it within the confines of his word and not go beyond that. And so um, as a brief statement, again, that there is one God, but that there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, but they are God. And so with that as the backdrop, I want to dive into John 1 verse 1. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And you'll notice that there's three clauses here in the beginning was the word as clause A and the word was with God clause B and the word was God clause C. So we're going to be looking at these individually. Obviously these are not in isolation. This one verse is not in isolation. So we're going to be looking at a couple of other verses to really make sure we get the context and and that We're properly understanding what the text is saying by looking at what the sentence itself is saying, the surrounding verses are saying, what the chapter is saying, and the book, and so on, and all of the Bible. Obviously, we're not going to do that in one episode, but just as a rule of thumb, that's how you want to do your Bible study, is not just looking at the sentence, but the surrounding context, the context of the chapter, the context of the Bible as a whole, etc., So, okay, jumping into the first clause, in the beginning was the word. So, in the beginning, in the original language, is the same exact words that you would find in Genesis 1.1, where we find, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, John, right off the bat, is hearkening us back to the beginning of creation. Now, If, As I mentioned, if you look at this in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, Genesis 1-1 uses the exact same words for in the beginning. So this is a parallel with the first book of the Bible and gives us the picture that John is beginning to paint that in the beginning where God created the heavens and the earth. So I just want to mention that. I also want to look at the word, the word or the logos in the Greek. So the word has a wide semantic range or many meanings. Uh, There was a lot of discussion in the first century with Greek philosophy on what this means. John, being a monotheistic Jew, uh, would have developed this meaning primarily from the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And so looking back at the Old Testament, there are many uses of the word word. The word God spoke things into existence. So if we go back into Genesis 1, 1, where it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light. So his word was speaking things into creation. So it's the speech of God. It's the revelation of God. It's his words. And as you look at the history of Israel and the Jewish people, they begin to actually, in some of their writings, give the Word its own identification. The Word brings forth creation, or, or the, the Word speaks, and almost a separate identity, which is interesting as we begin to develop John one one. that's what we're going to see. But it's the revelation of God, it's His spoken Word, it's Him speaking things into existence. And so, in the beginning was the Word. Now, this Word was... Is interesting, and I want to highlight that, because whenever John is speaking about the Logos, he uses a timeless verb, the verb was, but when he begins to talk about what the Logos made in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was, not anything made that was made, he changes the verb was to a different word, which means to become, or to have a point of origin. So whenever John is talking about the the logos or the word, he's using a timeless verb, but when he's talking about things that came into existence at a point in time, it's a different word altogether. And that's going to become very evident in verse 14 when the word becomes flesh. Now, what's interesting about this is when you put that all together, the first clause in the beginning was the word is saying that as far back as you want to push the beginning, at whatever point you want to make that, The word was or was already existing or in existence. The word is eternal. So let's kind of with that as our backdrop, move on to clause B. And the word was with God. So we have the logos. We have that timeless verb was, which again has no point of origin. It's just a continuous past, continuous action in the past. With God. Those words in the original language, pros ton theon, have this idea of being face to face with God or in close relationship with God. What's interesting is we've now distinguished the word from God. These are not interchangeable words. There's a relationship with, so if I said, I am with my wife, I'm not saying I am my wife. I am with my wife. I'm in relationship with. So there's a distinguishing between myself and my wife. So, and the word was with God. The word is distinguished from God. Now we have that timeless word was, so that relationship has always been in existence. The word has always been eternally in relationship with God. So we have as far back as you want to push the beginning, the word was in existence or the word is eternal the word has always been in existence with God, and the word was God. And here's where I want to just take a couple minutes and really dive into this third clause, and the word was God, because there's a lot of just discussion around this last clause as to um, how it should be translated. A lot of the cults, as I mentioned, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, Uh, Oneness, Pentecostals, Unitarians, they all have different ways that they translate this to prove that Jesus is not God. And one of those ways uh, is to say that the word was a God because the Greek word for God, theos, does not contain the Greek article or the English version of the word the. And so it's not talking about the definite or the true God. It's talking about just an indefinite or a God. And so I really want to unpack this so that we have a firm understanding of what this means and that we can have confidence that Jesus is God. So, and the word was God. Now, if you were to look at this in the original language, the word order is actually flipped where it says, and God was the word. Um, So why do we flip it around in English to say, and the word was God? Well, there's a couple reasons where the placement of the greek word for god it comes first in a greek sentence to display emphasis so what john is doing is he's emphasizing the nature of the logos so in greek grammar the article is there to teach you what the subject of the sentence is. So if we think about English grammar for a second, when you have a linking verb or or the to be verb or any verb, the subject always comes first and the predicate noun always comes after that verb. Well, in Greek grammar, the the word order is a lot more flexible and you can do different things based on the emphasis that you're trying to create uh, and the meaning that you're trying to communicate. So the The way that John writes this, by placing the Greek word theos, or God, at the beginning of the sentence, he's describing the nature of the logos. And the word logos, or word, has the English version of the word the before it, which tells the Greek reader that that's the subject, and God is the predicate noun. So we're not disc- we're not talking about who God is, we're talking about who the Logos is. So what you could say here is what God was, the word was, or as to his nature, deity. So what John is saying is that and the word, if we go back one clause, and the word was with God, so always in existence with God, and he himself is God. Is another way you could say that. So as to his nature, his essence, he is God. So, if we go back to our premise at the beginning that within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, this agrees perfectly with that premise. And there's a couple of other things that I want to highlight as to why, and the word was God, is a good translation. So, John was going with correct Greek grammar. So when we're translating this into English, we have to flip the word order to keep the meaning so that the subject comes before the verb. So the subject of the sentence is the word, the object of that is God, and we're speaking to as his nature. So in English, we would write it and the word was God. Now, if you're a Jehovah's witness, you believe that this should be translated as the word was a God because it lacks the article. So if we're going to be consistent with that line of logic, that because God does not have the article, it should be a God, there are other passages that use the word God without the article. And so we want to look at those as well and kind of go through those. So I'm just pulling those up here. So if John 1:6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That does not contain the Greek article. So it would say there was a man sent from a God. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Also does not contain the Greek article. So it would be the right to become children of a God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of a God, if it was translated that way. And then the last one in this chapter is verse 18, for no one has ever seen a God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. So. As you can see if it were to be translated as that way it distorts the entire meaning of the passage of John 1 and makes it non under it doesn't you don't understand what he's saying and really the point here is that context determines its meaning just like in English if i use the english word god i could be talking about the true god i could also be talking about a god depending on the context of how i'm using the word god generally when God is used in the scriptures, it is talking about the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there are times in scripture where it uses the Greek word for God with the article the, and it's in context talking about a false God. In Judges 16.23 is one classic example. And that says, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. So when it's talking about the false God Dagon, it's actually using in the Greek, the words the God. And so based on the context, we are talking about a false deity. So here's the point that I'm trying to make is that the article is not necessary. Context is what matters. So contextually, we've already determined that as far back as you want to push the beginning, The Logos, or the Word, is eternal. And the Logos, the Word, has always been in relationship with God. And as to his nature, himself is God. We go into verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. So we're recapping verse 1, that the Logos was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So all things were made through him. Well, who is the him? Well, if contextually, contextually, if we go back, the last person that we're talking about is the logos. So all things were made through the logos and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, if we skip ahead a little bit in verse 14, the logos becomes flesh and we know that that is Jesus. And God is a reference to the Father. So the Logos being Jesus, all things were made through Jesus. And so if we kind of use some cross-references to help us understand this, we can look at Colossians 1, 16, where it's talking about Jesus, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So now we're talking about Jesus creating all things. The other is in Hebrews 1, where it says in verse 3, he, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Going back to that last clause in John 1, 1, and the word was God, the exact imprint of his nature. There was not anything in God that was not in the word. So the word is truly God. And so I want to, there was other, one other verse that I wanted to touch on in Hebrews about Jesus making creation. Just going to find this real quick. Bear with me. There we go. It's actually in verse two. So Hebrews one, verse two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So again, we're talking about the Greek word God and whether or not it needs the article to talk about that so that it translates and the word was God. And the point that I'm making is that It does not need that article. That context is what determines its meaning because we're not talking about who God is. We're talking about who the Logos is and what the Logos is. So contextually, the word is eternal. The word was with God. The word as to his nature is deity or is God. And he is creating all things. And we're talking about the Logos. So all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. But wait a second. If we go back into the Old Testament, it talks about how Yahweh alone made the heavens and the earth. In many different passages in Isaiah, in the Psalms, uh, we can look at just one here in Psalms, I believe it's 33. Let me pull this up real quick. Yes, 33 verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So there's a reference to the Logos making the heavens and by the breath of his mouth, all all their host. We can say, Lord alone. Let's look that up real quick. Isaiah forty four twenty four. 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So we have John, a monotheistic Jew, monotheistic meaning the belief in one God, growing up knowing the scriptures in Isaiah forty four twenty four, 24, knows that Yahweh alone stretched out the heavens who spread out the earth by himself, making this statement that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, distinguishing the word from God. And as to the word's nature is God making all things. And without him was not anything made that was made. So contextually, this is not talking about a God because a God is not the creator God. The true God is the creator And contextually in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So now the Logos has life. And so this cannot possibly be talking about just a God or a mere man, that this is truly God. And so again, context determines meaning. Uh, Word order is more flexible in the Greek. So by placing the Greek word God there, he's describing the essence of the nature of the Logos. And also, here's a super important point. By placing the word the in that sentence, it would actually distort the whole meaning of John's point. And John here is actually rebuking all known heresies at that time and all future heretical views of the deity of Jesus. What do I mean? So, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. If he put the word the before God, so it was, and the word was the God, it would basically equate those two together. It would make those two words interchangeable so that all of God is, or all of the word is all of God, meaning that. The word encompasses all that God is. It would make the word the same as the Father, which would be actually a heretical doctrine known as Sabellianism, or you could say modalism, where there's only one divine person. The Father is the Son, the Son is the Spirit, the Spirit is the Father, etc. And at the beginning, we said that there is one God, but within that God, there's three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Father did not take on flesh. The Son took on flesh. And this was already stated in that second clause. And the word was with God. So if John had put the word order in that way, where he added the English word the, so that it says, and the word was the God, he would be making the word the same as the father, but he had just said that the word was distinguished with God in relationship with God. So that would distort the whole meaning of the passage. Now, the other part of this is by putting God at the beginning of the sentence, he's also rebuking another form of heresy known as Arianism, or that the word was created first and is therefore a lesser God or a God like Jehovah's Witnesses teach today, because he's emphasizing, again, the nature of the Logos, that the Logos is God, himself God. And so one great quote that I found, um, let me just pull this up as well, um, and it's actually by John or Martin Luther and I think this will help us bring some understanding here. Hopefully you guys are sticking with me. I know I'm kind of all over the place, but um, just really want to make sure I drive home these points. Here we go. So Martin Luther writes this, the lack of an article. So again, and the word was God, it does not contain the English word the, before God. So the lack of that article is against Sabellianism or the idea that The father is the son. The son is the spirit. The spirit is the father, etc. The word order, so the way that John writes this word order is against Aaronism, that the word is less of a God. So right here in John 1.1, John is getting rid of all heresy. He's being very intentional with his word order to show you that the word is eternal. The word was always in relationship with God. And as to his nature, is deity. So the word order is important. The context is important. And there is no possible way that this could be translated as in the word was a God because contextually, the Logos created all things. It's the Logos is the creator God because there's unity, there's a oneness, the one being that is God. Now, I know. We've been going for about 30 minutes, and I want to wrap this up. So I just want to kind of quickly go through uh, the first 18 verses and finishes up by doing the bookends of verse 14 and verse 18. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So now John has switched that verb for was in verse three to the Greek word geneta, which is the idea of a point of origin. So now it's coming into existence. Things are being made in in time. He switches that to a temporal verb. So was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. that same idea of coming into existence through the word yet the world did not know him verse 11 he came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God I want to stop here for just a second because one of the other false teachings about the the nature of Christ is that or the logos the word is that it's just an impersonal it you'll hear that um, that it's just an impersonal it it's just uh, his God's words, and it doesn't become a personal thing until the Word takes on flesh in verse 14. But this is very personal language that John is using. The Word is distinguished with God in verse one and has relationship, communion with God. The Word is creating all things. The Word has life in verse four. And then if we get down to verse 12 the logos has a name that people can believe in and the logos gives them the right to become the children of god so this is not just a impersonal force we're talking about a person the word and as we're about to see in verse 14 the word is jesus so verse 13 who are born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god and here we are verse 14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So when the word became flesh, so we're using that other Greek verb to, to become a point of origin. So there was a point in time where the logos becomes flesh and actually takes on human flesh. He didn't stop being. This is a key point, too. He didn't stop being the word, but he didn't just appear as a man. He actually became man. He became flesh and dwelt among us. The term dwelt among us actually speaks to when Israel was in the wilderness and God dwelt in the tabernacle. You could say pitched his tent among us. So when the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, so as we see in the picture of the Old Testament, where you have the, the, the tabernacle, the temple, and you have God dwelling in the temple, this is the same idea that John is giving us about Jesus, that God in Christ, the word become flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Again, very personal language. This is not just an impersonal force or an impersonal it. We've seen the words Glory. Glory as the only son the unique one is how it's it could be translated as well so the one of a kind and and that's true about Jesus he truly is the unique one the unique son who is with God and as to his nature is himself God from the father full of grace and truth so the word is full of grace and truth verse 15 John bore witness about him and cried out this was he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Even that is a declaration of the deity of Jesus. John bore witness about the Logos, Jesus, and cried out, this was he of whom I have said, he comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. If we know the the story of the birth of Jesus, John was born first. So, in an earthly sense, John would rank before Jesus, but that's not what John is talking about. He who comes after me, Jesus, ranks before me because he was before me, because Jesus is the pre-existent, eternal logos of God that was in the beginning with God and is God himself. Because again, if we're going back to our premise, there is one God who exists as three persons that are co-equal, co-eternal, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And with John's word order and the emphasis, he is not contradicting that. He's not saying that Jesus is the Father. He's not saying the Holy Spirit is the Father, etc. There is a oneness, there is a unity, and we're going to see this in John 5, John 10, John 14, John 16, John 17, John 20, that there is a unity, and it's complex. Again, it's outside of our full comprehension of our human mind, but this is the testimony of John's gospel, that Jesus is himself God. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace or grace on top of grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So even that I would say is a declaration of Jesus's divinity because God's grace and truth can only come from God himself. So just like the law was given through Moses or given by Moses or Moses It uses that kind of point of origin, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ or were made through Jesus Christ. Now, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God. Let's talk about this for just a second, because there are a couple points um, of when people did see God. Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is in the throne room of God and he's undone and he beholds God's glory, he saw God. Exodus 24, where God invites the nation of Israel up to the mountain and it says they saw God and he did not consume them. So there are moments in scripture where they saw God, but who did they see? The monogonese theos, the only God, or your KJV or NKJV, I believe might say, the only begotten Son. Now, here's an interesting thing. The most ancient manuscripts that we have today and the best reading that the scholars have concluded on is that the correct reading of this verse is the only God or the unique God. The monogenes theos, monogenes meaning unique or one of a kind, theos being God. So no one has ever seen God, the unique God, the only God who is at the father's side. So this is where it goes back to verse one, that the logos is with God who is at the father's side or in the father's bosom. This is very personal, intimate relationship. He has made him known, explained him or exegeted him. And so that is the word of God, Jesus. He, ex- he came to explain the father, to make him known. That is the eternal relationship between the father and the son. The father delights to make himself known through his word, Jesus. Jesus delights to make the father known. He is one with the father. You think about in other passages where the disciples said, show me the father. And, and Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And I want to go back to the Isaiah 6 vision real quick, because if you jump over into John 12 and you look at verse 41, so John 12, verse 41, it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Well, who is the he in John 12? The whole context is about Jesus. So Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus's glory and spoke of him. Well, the only place... In Isaiah where it talks about Isaiah seeing God's glory is Isaiah 6. And this is where in verse 3 and 1 called to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory. In the year, you know if we go back to verse 1 in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And they're saying, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. So if you asked Isaiah in Isaiah 6, who did you see? Isaiah would say, I saw Yahweh. I saw God, the Lord. But if you go and ask John, in John chapter 12, John, who did Isaiah see? John would say, Jesus. Because again, in verse 44, or 41 rather, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah 6, the only part in Isaiah where Yahweh, or Isaiah sees the glory of Yahweh. Who did you see? I saw Yahweh. John, who did Isaiah see? I saw Jesus. So again, jumping back into John 1, no one has ever seen God. The only God, the unique God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So no one has seen the Father. It's Jesus, the word of God, the logos of God that reveals the father and makes him know. So it's the word of God in text, the Bible. It's the word of God in person. The word of God is what reveals the father. And so again, it's the bookends, verse one to verse 18. And I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is God. Because no one else can have this relationship. We just read in Hebrews earlier that he's the exact imprint of his nature. Can a mere man be the exact imprint of God's nature? Can just a God be the exact imprint of his nature? Can a a mere created man, no matter how exalted he may be, a created man, if he's not God, can he claim to be the creator who made all things in heaven and on earth? Can just a God claim that? If we allow all scripture to speak the testimony of scripture, and there's a lot of other passages we could look at, but there exists one God, monotheism, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh alone created the heavens and the earth. There is one God, but within that one God, there exists three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was eternal, The word was with God, always in relationship, making the Father known, communing with God, and as to the Logos' nature, fully deity, God. And so I just want to end with this. I appreciate you guys sticking with me. This has been a great time. I'm going to include some links in the episode notes for some of the resources that I referenced so that you can see. I I reference a lot of works from Dr. James White. Michael Brown, Daniel Wallace, uh, some other resources on YouTube, A Daily Dose of Greek. There's a lot of different things that have helped me pull out these uh, truths that I want to share with you guys. Uh, so definitely check that out. But I just want to end with this in Revelation 5. Then I looked, verse 11, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. So all of creation, which excludes the lamb from a created thing, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus is God. And to the praise of his glorious grace, I will confess that to my dying breath. And I hope that this was encouraging you too, guys, and gives you uh, arrows in your quiver to defend the faith. And if you have any questions, definitely reach out. But thank you guys for listening today. I know this was a bit of a longer episode, but I really appreciate you guys listening to this. And have a great rest of your evening. Take care.